Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis. We are speaking after game four of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Hawks uh, coming out with a pretty decisive win over the Bucks. And I guess the leading question is uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich leads the postseason in steals with 26. Is he now the uh, NBA's best perimeter defender? Um, I, I think we have to say yes. <laughs> I, does that, is that a true statement? I had no idea. Yeah, he's got 26 steals, so he's, he leads the postseason. He had four tonight. Yeah, and Herter is like – Herter's up like there too. Fifth in blocks. So I, I've, been, I've been tweeting about Herter's blocks. There's only like four centers that have more blocks than Herter in the postseason. <laughs> that's, that's right. Actually, it's funny because, you know, I – you know, we, you watch Bogdanovich offensively tonight and he's making shots and he looks comfortable. But, but for me in the first quarter, you know, I saw him guarding Middleton, you know, when Middleton – gets comfortable with his back to the basket and Bogdan's just been so good at that. And when I saw Bogdan tonight, I was like, Oh yeah, he, he's, he's probably feeling pretty good. And I was judging it more off of, you know, his, his defensive bounce could getting into it and digging into Middleton there. Yeah. Which is amazing because in games two and three, I felt like so many times the Bucks ball handlers were just dribbling like right in his face almost to kind of embarrass him <laughs> like you do with a kid when you're dribbling and like, you can't get the ball. Like, <laughs> like with the kid that you hold their head, you know, or I, I mean, I've never done that, but I feel like I've seen that before. <laughs> I, most kids are taller than me anyway, but, um, <laughs> but it felt like it was kind of like that. But then tonight was just that he was totally transformed uh, defensively. And then the shots going down just kind of firmed what I think what we thought we were seeing, you know, whether, our observations were on defense at the other end. It was all working for him tonight. And that timely, timely for that to happen with trading out in this game. Yeah. I thought really that was, that was the key to the game was just watching the Hawks defense in the first quarter. It just felt like all the margins, all the little stuff, you know, when, when Giannis gets to 13 feet away on the baseline and he's got his back to the basket or he's trying to set up for some sort of move, you could see the helper, kind of edging in and the, the help, the helper coming, you know, over to help the helper. And it, you just, it just felt like they were on point in terms of what they were doing, uh, at least in, in the half court and transition. I think there were a couple lapses, but, uh, you know, one, once the Bucks had to get into a set offense, it felt like the Hawks were in a good spot all night long. Yeah. But even in semi-transition, they would, they were a lot better on the Bucks rim runners. Um, you know, they were, they were taking a better angle. They were sealing a little closer to the baseline. And there were a few passes that went out of bounds when they were trying to kind of make that over-the-top entry pass right. to the rim runners that were trying to seal. So even though they weren't perfect there, they were better and they fought harder. And they were it looked like they were executing with more attention to detail, trying to close off and make that passing window as small as possible. So, you know, whatever Nate did, the coaching staff did kind of get them – mentally prepared to kind of go out and execute to the level they did defensively tonight credit to the coaching staff but also to the players they're the ones who actually have to execute and I mean they they were showing more bodies in the paint I thought their stunts and their digs were really well timed and they weren't um, advertising the the little help and the kind of the faux help early and kind of giving a rhythm to the ball handler who where that might be in the post and they were just I mean really on, on point um, tonight defensively I think 
they only gave up what like 14 points in the paint in the first half um which you know says a lot for what they did because of you know it feels like it's been about 35 a half <laughs> throughout most of the series and yeah. get that to 14 and to do that while they were they did a pretty good job closing out on shooters too so i i i personally would have a hard, i mean if i asked myself can they replicate this defensive performance again was it so good that they can only realistically and fairly be expected to get to like 90% of what they did tonight or whatever that is, you know, um, that might be true. This might, this might be as good as they can do on the, uh, on defense against this Bucks team in my mind. Now in the third quarter, the Bucks were hammering the ball into the paint using that nail pick and roll of Middleton and with Tucker to get Giannis kind of going downhill. So the Bucks came out with some things to throw what the Hawks were doing defensively, and they had some success for sure in the third quarter before Giannis fell with the injury. So we we don't know if the Bucks would have persevered in the end with kind of their little. It wasn't anything new, but they were just kind of getting to some things they've been working all series long and being more intentional about it. But it was a great, great defensive performance, and they shot the ball well enough. I it felt like all, they shot better than they did when I went back and looked at the stat sheet. They were like low 30s or something i can't remember exactly what it was but um but it was seemed like every three-pointer when it was timely <laughs> you know so yeah i mean certainly you know Giannis middleton screen roll actions are the the scariest thing that that they can do um right and you're right in the second half that that sort of thing looked really good that's like the one <laughs> that's like the one thing that they've done it's like oh well, there there might not be an answer for that, but um, you know, I guess to sort of recap where we are with injuries, uh, the Bucks really haven't said much about Giannis um, as as far as Trey goes tonight. Nate McMillan said that he expects that it will be a game time decision for Trey in Game Five. He said that he wasn't comfortable putting weight on his foot before the game, um, and then with Clint Capella. Uh, you know, the, the Hawks basically said that they'll, you know, have an information, uh, more information or an update before 5 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, so I think Tim Bontemps had a tweet that that he said that there were sources that said that they were optimistic for Capella. But if if you're the Bucks and you don't have Giannis, uh, you know, what becomes your recipe for success uh, without him? Yeah, I, I think you've got to rely on kind of Drew and Middleton just trying to get into the middle and collapsing the defense, kicking it out. I think you have to play guys like Forbes a lot more, even though he's a liability on defense. Yeah. Lopez, just as a shooter, probably has to be out there more, you know. And so I, I those, you know, Drew is a good ball handler. I view Middleton as an average ball handler. He's, he's not, you know, very creative. He's super functional, but, you know, I'm not saying he's bad. Um, but those guys are capable of getting into the middle, and the Bucks do a great job. All of their bigs work really hard setting screens. You know, they get they're proactive, they get good angles, and so I don't see there being a major challenge with those guys getting in the middle um, and collapsing the defense. Um, I mean, neither one of them like shoot a, a ton of free throws, and go, you know, neither one of them kind of go seek out a lot of contact with the rim. That's not to say that. In that situation, they can't kind of turn something like that on, knowing if Giannis is out, you know. But I think it really does come down to collapsing the defense, kicking it out, and trust their best shooters to to make shots. Um, 
And, you know, that's, that's a kind of a scary proposition when you're the favorite, I guess, is to kind of trust your perimeter shot making to be what's going to make it work for you. Um, but that's, that's that, those are the kinds of things you have to do when you lose your best player, I guess. Yeah, and, I, you know, Giannis is a huge loss defensively, and you mentioned playing Lopez because of the shooting. I, I think you have to play Lopez also just because of the defense. Um, you know, when you sure. lose Giannis, you know, right before he got hurt, you know, he'd had a quarter and a half of basketball. It's like, oh, yeah, that's why he has, you know, defensive player of the year awards in his pockets because he's such a timely uh, help defender at the rim. You know, it's just such a bonus to have a second uh uh, a second shot blocker out there and he's so good at that um but you know when if you don't have Giannis and you're not playing Lopez much then you really just don't have much room protection you're not going to get that sort of thing from Portis uh so I I think you have to play Lopez and and I think you gamble a little bit that you know your one reason that you would be afraid of playing Lopez defensively is that Trey is sort of going to eat up the drop coverage and, and, and that drop coverage gets a little bit worse without Giannis. But at the same time, you know, if, if Trey isn't feeling 100%, you know, you, you might need to just, you know, say, uh, you know, we've got Lopez in here and, uh, you know, they might have to make some concessions. There might be a little bit of room for Trey, but you're, you're just going to have to live with that. If, yeah, if Trey can beat you with floaters on one leg, then, then, then maybe that's just, you just tip your hat at that point. But I, I think you've got to play Lopez quite a bit now. Agreed. Yeah. And Lopez is so uh, good at the rim. I mean, he's just so good defending at the rim. And people criticize Giannis for not taking kind of the primary assignment or whatever, but he's so disruptive when he's off the ball and coming in and either jumping passing lanes or yep. being that weak side. And he's such a good rebounder, too. Like, why do you want to put him at the point of attack 25 feet from the paint when you could put him somewhere where he's able to just kind of help off his guy? And he's one of right. those. I, mean, I think there's an here. argument for that on Durant just because they're so both so freakish. Like oh, sure. Durant's so darn tall that you know that that might be the one time and if we're going back to the net series, then then I kind of like it in that situation just because Durant is special. Like <laughs> God didn't make a whole lot of Kevin Durant's. So I, yeah. I, I wouldn't hate it in that one situation, but yeah, uh, apart from that, you know, I just I love seeing what he can do as a help defender. For sure, yeah, and um, and and on top of that, even in a a Durant kind of scenario, I mean, I I think coaches. uh, We've talked before how coaches are are fairly rigid and they like their templates. I use these words like their templates. And Giannis has been a disruptive off, you know, off defender, weak side rim protector all year long. Do you go away from that? You know, after a full season and in this situation with the Bud and the Bucks, what three? or more full seasons of, you know, using Giannis in that one way and to switch it up, you know, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about that, but I kind of have a little bit of empathy, you know, with my own coaching background of like someone just saying, flip the switch and switch what you're doing, you know, in the fourth quarter of game seven or whatever it might be <coughs> and do something completely different that you've been doing all year long. That's, that's strange. But I mean, I mean, it's not defense, a zone defense. We're going to get way too far off topic, but like, yeah. I mean, it's not like, even if he's, you know, not guarding the primary ball threat, it's not like he's never on the ball. So, I mean, he can, he can handle being on the ball. He's a big boy. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. And I, I wasn't saying that to mean 
it's the reason to just not do it. I'm just saying there is another side. Yeah. There's another yeah, side for sure. to consider yeah. it. Cause yeah, you, there's certainly, you're, you're giving something up. It's not, it's not a positive without negatives. You put them on the ball and you lose all the good stuff off the ball. Yep. And it's nice to have defenders who can kind of clean things up behind the plate for sure. Uh, what did the Hawks do differently on offense without Trey? Yeah, I don't think it was that different. Um, okay. The reason I say that is that since, I think since game two, Trey's been giving the ball up a lot and going to yeah. the corner and working up ball and coming back into the play. And so I, I, that's not, and so I think some of the things that they did tonight, they've been doing almost or, organically as a result of the Bucks basically after Trey put 48 points on them in game one, making Trey really their primary focus and, and just deciding someone else is going to have to kind of have to create offense to create, you know, offensive production in this way. And so in that sense, what they've had to do for the, in the latter part of game two, after the Hawks kind of, you know, made some adjustments to that in game three, prepared them to go into this game without Trey because yeah. it's been Herder, it has been Bogdanovich, and it's been Lou on with Trey. And, and so it's, you know, no one made a strategic decision to kind of set them on this course. It just so happens that the way the Bucks have taken Trey out has kind of ramped up everybody else's kind of role into being more primary, and that set them up for tonight. But I, I thought the main thing, and this is like maybe the – the thing that has most impressed me about Nate's uh, impact on the team is that they're under control, they're patient, they're intentional about kind of getting into an action, um, and then they have, like, great shot clock awareness. They'll work the shot clock. They'll work early, like Nate talks about all the time. If something's right there, go get it. Um, that was, That's not nearly as available without Trey. Trey's the one who can really get something really early, I think. So there were, and I think that just set them into a nice rhythm where Herder, McDonough, and Lou from the beginning were sharing the ball. Um, Lou would oftentimes bring the ball up with the McDonough, McDonough would run that side slash slot pick and roll, you know, and it was just, they just looked comfortable and patient and under control. And so I didn't really see anything new maybe the one new wrinkle i saw tonight um was when gallo and jc were on together they were running cross screens in both directions and setting gallo up at basically on the post on one side and jc on the other side because the bucks have been overplaying the single post a lot and they were basically passed the ball to like capella at the middle you know or whoever maybe even a congo he was in and creating uh post opportunities on both sides at the same time so that the Bucks couldn't overhelp. And, you know, I think J.C. only had like four points tonight, but I thought he had a massive impact offensively in the game by just how strong he was showing up in that post and demanding attention. And, you know, I think they hit like seven three-pointers in the third quarter. And a lot of that came when Gallo and J.C. were presenting on both sides, on the post on both sides of the court at the same time. So that was the one new wrinkle I saw. I have no idea if we ever see that of trade plays because they just, you know, you're not needing to find a tertiary kind of option to go to, but I thought it was under control sharing. And again, I think the course of the series set them up to have good rhythm doing that. But then the, the Gallo and JC stuff where they were both working cross screen screens at the same time to opposite posts was new. I thought it was really effective. Did you see something else? No, that, that certainly sounds good to me. Uh, 
What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> Cam Reddish? Okay, Cam Reddish. <laughs> Super disruptive defender tonight. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. You 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 remember uh, you know what what he can do in terms of uh, digging into somebody who's trying to dribble. And and just recognizing when there's a ball screen coming, and even if you can't get in between the screen and the ball, just changing the angle. And, you know, and sometimes just making the dribbler move from right hand to left hand and, and kind of reset an angle and find a more horizontal kind of path across that screen instead of downhill. He was so, I mean, he was incredibly disruptive tonight. And I know the shot making was exciting. That's more, the more aesthetically pleasing kind of thing to get excited about and, you know, rah, rah and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, happy for him that he had success tonight for sure. Um, but this, his, you can't rely on his, he hasn't proven that you can rely on his shot making to be like a really core part of how you're producing offense. But when you think back that middle, I mean, even though Trey was obviously hurting in the fourth quarter of game three, it took a 20-point fourth quarter from Middleton to get the Bucks that win. Um, you know, the Hawks had a great defensive game plan in the second half of game three. I thought they carried a lot of that over to tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I felt like, especially with Giannis went out, the one real path that the Bucks might have getting back into it was Middleton kind of going um, off like he did in the fourth quarter of game three. And, you know, Reddish doesn't deserve all the credit for that not happening, but he deserves a lot of credit for Middleton never really finding a, a comfortable, you know, um, rhythm or in a, in a reliable set of angles to use with his ball screeners to kind of get to where he wanted. I, I thought he had a massive impact on the game. Yeah. Uh, I, I know he's, he made some threes that he probably shouldn't have made tonight, but he also made the first one uh, that was just kind of a open corner three. And, and I, I trust him on that shot more than I do Solomon Hill. I, I think you know, he, he's going to, force the defense to be a little uh, more honest than, than they might be otherwise. Yeah. I mean, he's been a primary creator, primary shooter since he was what, 13 or 14 years old. Solomon Hill's never been that, you know, so there's kind of something there. Um, I, you know, I said this on Twitter in a conversation I was having with a few people, but you know, I thought part of what pushed Reddish into the rotation tonight wasn't just the defense. I think the defense was definitely part of the value proposition, but without Trey, they just needed more ball. No, for sure. Yeah. Solo gives you no – I mean, if you think Solo gives you no shooting, he gives you less ball handling, you know, than he does even shooting. He's yeah. a, at least he's like about a 32% shooter, statistically speaking. I don't remember the last time he made a three, to be honest yeah. with you, so I don't know what he is right now. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I thought that play where Reddish created the still and then he ran out and kind of got the hit-ahead – I thought that was like sort of easy – the perfect Redis play, the, oh, the sure. turnover creation and the super easy points in transition. That is like the best of the best of what Reddish can give you. And yeah. especially when you think about in this series, the Bucks are so good in transition. And once they start creating turnovers and even with long rebounds and creating easy points in transition, it's so hard to beat them when they're doing that. So you can get some of that on your own. It just balances the tables, you know, really nicely there. And that's, something that maybe 
Reddish can give them that nobody else on the team can is that ability to kind of create disruption and be long and in a fluid athlete in the open court and you know get those easy points. I, I thought that was massive. I know that you know, I have to say this, Kevin. People on Twitter have been begging Nate to stop playing solo, and what I um, I haven't been pushing back on the idea of playing Reddish. What I've been trying to help people understand is that. It's not as easy as telling Solo to sit down and telling Redis to go in the game. When Redis played in game two, he'd not even played any five on five since he played his last I game. I asked him about that game. tonight. Yeah. He didn't really give me much of an answer. He's like, yeah, that's a good question. I was like, you, you haven't played for Nate yet. You know, what, what's it like sort of stepping in four months later for a coach who you really haven't gotten to practice for and you really haven't gotten to play for? And he's like, you know, that that's a good question. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he said, like, stay patient and thank God. But, you know, you could just kind of see in his face, just kind of reading. It's like, yeah, that's kind of a lot. Yeah, but I mean, what the – and people think, like, oh, Glenn loves Solo. I appreciate Solo. I appreciate being defenders. Now, Solo's never going to be disruptive at the point of attack, disruptive on ball, not even close to what Cam can do. But the, the process for Cam was, as we look back, throw him out there in game two, just let him get some run, let him get some time on the court. And probably the next day, see how he feels, you know, even and check, kind of checking in on that. And then the coming into game four, especially with no tray and needing extra ball handling, I have no doubt that they did very specific game planning with Cam. So in the middle of game two or the middle of game three, if you have a game plan, Cam into a specific defensive role, it's not like it's easy to just say, Cam, jump out there and go shut down Chris Middleton. There's a whole host of tactics and scheme and game planning that has to go into that. And they made a this strategic decision ahead of this game that, that Cam would play a specific defensive role and had the time and the space to work with him to get him ready for that. And so I just, I share that not to tell fans, oh, you're wrong. You don't know. You don't understand. But just to provide a different perspective of, you know, when I see on Twitter, dumb coach, bad coach, just throw Cam out there, I try to share some perspective with my own coaching background that it's just not that easy. It's never that easy. It takes, you know, getting, is he physically ready? You know, how, how did he feel the next day? Um, you know, what kind of rhythm did he demonstrate? What kind of rhythm did he gain in his minutes on the court? And then do you have the time and space to prepare him individually for what you're asking him to specifically do? And that's those are I have no doubt not having talked to any coaches or players that all of that went in to preparing him for this game and credit to him for executing. I just get frustrated when I hear people say, "Oh, Nate's dumb for sticking with Solo." No, it it's a it's a everything's a process, including this. And you know, credit to the Hawks coaching staff for you know getting Cam some run in game two when it was you know looking like they very low probability they're going to win that game. They got some value out of that game in that sense. And they got ROI in that in game four. So, I mean, let's stop hating on them. Being, I mean, I like to I'll criticize coaches when I see something that just looks nonsensical to me. But I try to push back on folks saying dumb, bad coach because it just looks like it should be easy to just came out there. It's work, it's time, it's preparation. It's all of that. And all of that played into what we saw. In- like Cam would have – Cam would have definitely had a bigger role in this series, like a known fixed role in the series. If, you know, in some fantasy land, uh, the Hawks sweep the, the Sixers in four games and they get a week off, like then you need that body because you know that you're just, you know, the Hawks have not been a deep team for a while now. And 
they they would you know amp him up and prep him and get him ready. They just literally <coughs> have not had time. It's just been every other day, even between series. So it, you know it's hard to get him ready. And I, I, you know, the Hawks did well without Solo tonight. That that can't be denied. I th- I think I think a, maybe a good way to say it is that Solo's ideal role is against a good passing team, like you know there there is the axiom or the maxim or whatever you want to call it where you would say that uh you know the the ball moves faster than any player can you know if you you move it the right way you know ball movement is faster than player movement and you know solo is ideal for that you know when when there's a rotation to be made you know when you've got to read the weak side and get out to somebody solos sort of processing that and making that happen faster uh i don't know that the bucks are a good passing team i sort of feel like you know the, the ball's in Adetokumbo's hands a lot. Uh, and, you know, he's fine as a passer. I don't think he's anything special as a passer. I think it's everything else about his package that you have to give him so much attention that makes him a good passer. Um, right. And, you know, you're using guys like Forbes off the bench. You know, they're, they're out there to shoot. Uh, you know, Teague is a good passer, but, you you know, there, there are other issues with him. And so they're not really using. They just don't have a lot of great passers on the floor. It's uh, – you know, they're more about just kind of executing their system. And I don't think that there's, uh, you know, but Bud's offenses are sort of known for, for passing magic and, and creativity, but I, I don't know that this particular team is necessarily up to that. We haven't seen those kind of flashes in the series. For sure. I, I, I agree. I think Drew for guard is an average passer. Middleton's probably kind of about the same. Giannis to his credit has learned to, you know, know when he's getting a lot of attention and seeing a cutter or seeing a pass to the, an open shooter that he, even two years ago he wasn't doing. So he's built himself up to being useful as a passer. But yeah, still I mean, not, he's good, know. but, it, you know, right. he's fine. There's a lot of fine in terms of passing. Right. But, you know, if you go back to in St. Beck's for game three, you know, it was it felt like it was tied with like five minutes left or something like that, right? And it was – the game was right there for either team to take. And the Hawks couldn't make any shots. And Middleton made all of basically seemed like all of his shots. I went back and looked at it. It wasn't, it wasn't true. He missed a few. And I was surprised <laughs> to go back and see that. But the reality was the Hawks didn't have enough at the point of attack to do anything to kind of, I mean, they were closing out on him. They were, they were, it's not like he was wide open on every shot, but he was still getting to his spots and he was dribbling into his shooting motion comfortably. And Solo's not uh, even an average you know, on-ball defender, you know, especially with anyone who has any kind of creation ability. He's a backline organizer. He's a you know, weak side defender. He's good team defender. But, you know, Cam being available to defend on-ball and be disruptive in the way that he can be was a major factor in this game. That doesn't mean Solo Hill sucks. It just right. means that right. they needed something different tonight. Um, and who knows, depending on you – know, game flow, foul issues, et cetera, et cetera. Solo might be needed for a key stretch in game five. We, we, we don't yeah. know. And thankfully he's there if you just need a good team defender for some stretch, you know. Right. Cam is beautiful to have when he's doing what he does on defense and he's making some shots right. and he's getting out of transition. That's great. But I think that you have to be prepared for the offense to kind of come and go with him and really rely on the fact that, you know, yeah, game three – they couldn't make any shots down the stretch, but they probably still could have had a, a nice shot to win the game if they could have had someone that could impact Middleton 
Cam did that tonight. They didn't have anybody in game three. Yeah, I mean, and also, really, their offense just died because they didn't have a trade. Um, For sure. Yeah, it's 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 hard. It's almost like the 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 Hawks haven't had you know their true wing defense in such a long time. You know they've they've used John Collins to guard you know top wing threats, and they've used Solomon Hill to 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 guard top wing threats. And it's almost like they're using you know some bigs to guard the elite wings, just because they really haven't had any wing defenders without Hunter without Reddish and you know, you're playing Bogdanovich and Trey Young and Lou Williams. And it's like, you just don't really have, you know, any kind of real wing defenders. And the one sort of real wing defender that you've had, I guess, has been Kevin Herter. And I think there's some fringe benefit to playing Cam Reddish, uh, you know, on some of these, you know, primary wing assignments, because uh, it, it's a miracle that, that, Kevin Herter has held up as well as he has because they've asked him to do so much on both ends. Yeah, especially with trading Andrew tonight, and before that, then taking Trey out, Kevin's had to do so much initiation. And then he's, um, like just like you said, he had he's had so much defensive responsibility. He's been all over the place. It is amazing. Um, but I mean that. That's one of the things that you can enjoy about sports, even when there are unfortunate injuries like Hunter's out, and it's given us a chance to see more of what Herder can do as a defender, you know, taking on some responsibilities that no doubt Hunter would have if he were not hurt, you know. Um, but, you know, credit to him for, you know, kind of stepping up and being so forceful as a defender too. Um, it's just crazy to think that we're, you know, now you know, four games into the conference finals in, like, Kevin Herter has been such a key cog for them and reliable. You know, like even tonight, he didn't make his first three-point shot, I don't think, until his last one. Um, and he but he was so impactful, you know, even when the three-point shot wasn't going in, just in so many different ways, his ability to dribble down into the mid-range and get shots and navigate late, late shot clock situations and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it's just – it's just – it's hard to believe kind of – how mysterious this team was at the beginning of the regular season that here we are with no Hunter, you know, Trey missed, you know, game four, you know, Cam's played just two games now under Nate McMillan and they're two and two in the conference finals. It's, it's crazy. I, I, I was going to ask you, like, I think we're at a point now with Hawks Bucks being two, two Giannis, who knows what his condition is. Fingers crossed that he's okay. I hope he can play the whole rest of the way. You know, that there's miraculously that this is a, a minor thing for him and the same portray. But anyone's predictions about how the playoffs would go ahead of the playoffs starting, I think everyone gets amnestied or whatever we want to call it. Yeah, we'll <laughs> light them all on see. fire. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Grace, uh, Grace uh, you know, covering for everyone's <laughs> prognostications that went into – this hellish playoffs with everybody. It seems like who's important, you know, missing some time, whether it's Chris Paul or Anthony Davis or Kyrie, and we can go on and on and on. But I'll be glad when it's funny, I'll be glad when the season's over because I just never want to see the NBA get back to this kind of condensed schedule again, ever. But the Hawks run has been so fun at the same time. So there's kind of a, a duality to the experience of the season. But I'm hopefully the Hawks keep doing well, but I'll also just kind of breathe a sigh of relief when it's all over. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the Hawks have had enough injuries on their in their own right, and uh, that I don't think anybody could say that that 
they've benefited from injury this postseason. But no. at the same time, uh, you know, just apart from injuries, and it, you, it's hard to separate them, but like, you know, if you could make this magic world where, where injuries didn't exist, the parody's kind of fun. I mean, for years and years and years, the NBA has just been so predictable. And, right. you know, they need some Cinderella action. And, and seeing the Suns do what they've done, seeing the Hawks do what they've done. I mean, I know the, the Suns weren't a Cinderella, but if you, you told anybody, you know, pre-bubble uh, that, you know, pretty soon the Suns were going to be up 3-2 in the conference semifinals, people would have laughed, or conference finals, people would have laughed their butts off at that. They would have been like, no way. Right. Uh, and the team's just... The teams historically just don't do their their, for their first time in. Right. I mean, I mean, there's so many examples of like you look at what Philly's gone through and how many failures they've had, and that's normal. That's not that's not abnormal. That's normal. <laughs> you know, I mean, we can go back through all the things that OKC went through before they got to an actual finals appearance, and just that, that's normal to need three or four shots to learn and grow and evolve and develop kind of the mental strength and if you I could say spiritual strength and the you know the non-faith kind of you know sense of spiritual strength to manage yourself through this it it takes repetitions and so it's just so unusual for a Suns team and, and on this side the Hawks team what the Bucks have been going through you know that's normal to bump into you know where you lose a series that everybody thought you were going to win or, or felt like you should have won and, and the, I mean just like Boston's been kind of through that in the last few years too. And now, you know, like I mentioned, Philly, um, that's, that's all just normal, you know? And so for the Suns to be kind of where they are now, the Hawks have up they have really rare. And it's, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine. Yeah. I don't really want to flip ahead, but it's hard to imagine like, what does this team look like going into the next season? What are the expectations? What are fair expectations? We'll deal with that later, but it's, it's so unusual that it makes me curious about stuff like that already. Yeah, and it's honestly, it's <coughs> it's almost like an advantage that they've outkicked their expectations. Like it makes it easier to just do it before the expectations start. <laughs> you just sure. kind of play fast and loose and free. Well, and it's like I mean, I always I don't I I, I kind of hate grabbing this for obvious reasons, but I just want to share like what the Mavericks experienced last year. You know, Luca made that game winner, but they got beat went in five games by the Clippers, I think. And they got five whole games of experience, you know. And just by contrast, this season, look where the Hawks are. Look how many games they've played. Look how many games they've won. Look how many tough game situations they've been in. And that all has feedback loops back into sort of their shared kind of organizational psyche and, and knowing what it takes. It's, I remember, like, Nate after game two said, the Bucks showed us there's another level we have to get to for us to be competitive. I'm paraphrasing for us to be competitive in this conference finals. And the Hawks have brought that, you know, in game. And I thought they did to start game three. I thought they waned a little bit, you know, some parts of game three. And tonight I thought they were on point and studied the whole time. Um, but usually it takes, you know, at least like two years of maybe getting to the semi conference semifinals and getting to a sixth game in the second round. And, you know, to have, I mean, for the Hawks to get all of this benefit, all this value from the season, regardless of what happens from here, has just been incredibly valuable. 
you know, in, in that sense, in terms of how hard it is to go get that much experience, that much playoff experience as a team, just, I mean, incredibly valuable. All right. <coughs> Maybe we wrap it up there. Any final thoughts? I don't think so. Um, 538 last I checked has Hawks 24% probability to win the series. I have no idea if they're factoring in what the honest injury might be. I mean, to me, this series is a black box right now to me. I have no idea what expectations to be, but hopefully everybody will be on a path to getting better. And hopefully we'll have, you know, representative, you know, rosters from each side and hopefully the rest of the series will be fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Fair enough. Thank you for doing this, Glenn. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good night. You too.